Okay, so so uh, here's here's my thought on this. I'm gonna basically what I'm sharing with you is a uh, it's kind of like a fundamental <clears throat> it's a fundamental driver in both what I do as a pastor, the way we think about art, the way we think about everything at our church, but also it's kind of the fundamental driver in just like the kind of dude I'm trying to be, right? So there's, this is, uh, it'll be relatable, but as we talk, I have no problem, because we're kind of a small group, I have no problem with being interrupted, ever. So like, if you ever stop and go like, I don't get how this ties together, or is this kind of what we're talking about, or whatever, like, this can be interactive, that will not throw me off or bug me at all, um, but I do have a kind of an outline here that I'll also crank through. Um, and then we can discuss it or whatever, but I'll just kind of give you an overview um, of, of why this means so much to me and then sort of how it translates into both my personal life and our ministry at church and the kind of things we're doing. So by the way, I don't, I didn't, I guess they mentioned this last night, but I, I'm currently a pastor at uh, a church in Fullerton, California. I've been there for five years. Before that, I was a pastor, at a ch- or a associate pastor at a church in uh, Long Beach, and I did that for about nine years, and then I, I was on staff here at Hume Lake for about nine years and then I was in a band for I, I got these nine-year cycles I don't know why that is but so anyway I, yeah so that that's sort of a little bit about me um, if you have a Bible you can turn to John chapter 3 and if you don't I'll read this for you but let me let me kind of set this up so in John chapter 3 there's this really interesting thing that happens uh, in that John the Baptist has been out in the wilderness baptizing and he's built up kind of a reputation for himself, right? So he, there's a lot of people that are going to John the Baptist. And he is, the baptism that John the Baptist is doing is a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So in anticipation of the Messiah, he's calling the Jewish people to like turn from their wicked ways, whatever that is, and be prepared because the Messiah is on the horizon, basically. So in John 1, it talks about the fact that John, uh, and we'll actually look at that a little bit too, but John the Baptist was really adamant about making sure people knew, hey, the, the Lamb of God is coming, like be prepared. So he's baptizing people, and they have they have a fairly robust ministry in that, that it's he's you know he's building a little bit of momentum, so much so that John the Baptist himself has disciples. A lot of people don't know that. We think all the time about the disciples of Christ. But John the Baptist has his own disciples, people that are that see him as their leader and are following. So in John 3, interestingly, uh, John the Baptist uh, is baptizing in the same place where then Jesus and his disciples come, and they're baptizing in the, basically in the same vicinity, right? And John the Baptist's disciples kind of freak out. They sort of melt down a little bit because it, they feel threatened. So here's let me just read this, and then, and then we'll dive into um, John the Baptist's response. It says in verse 22 of John 3, After this, Jesus and his disciples, and that after this is talking about the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. So if you're familiar with that story, one of the religious leaders comes to Jesus and is at first trying to build some solidarity with him. Uh, but Jesus is pretty quick to go, hey, you've got to be, you've got to be born again. Like the, the religious knowledge that you have is not going to do the trick. After that, then 22, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him, right? So this is, it's funny, the places where like competition rears its head. And that's true for us as artists. But it's even strangely true for us as Christians. It's really weird the places where we start to feel threatened or we start to feel like we're in competition. One of the funny things that's sort of a, uh, it's not so much of a deal at Hume anymore because we've found ways to change it. But when I first started at Hume, there was like a very predictable pattern. We do a thing at the end of the week of summer camp called Victory Circle where we go up. There's several circles, but it's basically like a big circle with a fire pit. and, And we're giving students an opportunity there to share what God has done in their life, right? So there was this kind of, back in the day, there was this awkward pattern because it was kind of blue sky. Kids could share whatever they wanted. And so you'd have a kid that would stand up and the first kid would go, I just want to thank God because, you know, I've had a really hard week, but, you know, God really met me here at Him and I just want to thank Him for that. People would be like, that's pretty cool. And then like a few minutes later, somebody would stand up and be like, well, I want to thank God because I've had a really hard month, you know, and God's really, he's really met me, you know, and I, like, I really want to just thank him for that. And then the next kid's like, 
I've had a hard year. And then the next kid's like, well, my parents died. You know, and you're like, whoa, I got heavy real fast. And somebody's else like, my dad's the head of a Mexican drug cartel. You know, and you're like, you watch the thing escalate really fast to the point where like, People are saying things in that context, and you're like, that can't even be true. But you know they're feeling this pressure to, like, one-up the testimony of the person in front of them. That's a funny thing that happens with us where we feel like we need a better spiritual story or whatever. And since back in the day, we've changed the way we do Victory Circle. And now most of the time, I think we kind of go, hey, we want you to finish this sentence. Like, God did this, you know. You know, you give them very narrow parameters so they can't do that. But what we're seeing here in John chapter 3 is it's kind of that very same thing. John the Baptist's disciples come to him and they go, hey, that guy you told us about, the one with the beard and the blue sash, he's over there, and you're not going to believe this, but he started baptizing people. Like, you got to be kidding us. Like, that's our thing. They don't call him Jesus the Baptist. They call you John the Baptist. This is your niche, right? And he's stealing all our customers, right? It's almost as if the sentiment of John the Baptist's disciples is like, we're going to need to start printing coupons or something. Like we're going to come up with like a two-for-one dunking special so that we can get all our people back because we had this long line of people, and now they're all going over there. And like, what are we going to do? Well, I want us to think about that for a second in, in terms of both if you're serving in a church or just as a disciple, an ambassador of Christ, I want, I want to be a kind of person who is very aware of the moments when competition rears up its head in my life. Because there's really no there's really no place for competition. It's interesting when you well, we're going through a study in First Corinthians at my church right now, and in First Corinthians chapter three, which I taught last week, Paul's really clear to go like Apollos is nothing and I'm nothing and we're just like he waters I plant, but God gives the growth and he literally will go so far in First Corinthians three to say God is everything, and those of us who are working the field together we're kind of we we got nothing to fight over because if we don't work together. Nothing will be produced. Like if the if the water and the planter get into a competition, there is no there is no growth, right? Because we need each other. All of us need each other. So there's no reason to be in competition. As an artist, or as a musician, or as a minister of the gospel, as an ambassador, competition is actually proof that we've lost the main thread, right? The moment that we start to compete is when we've taken our eyes off of Jesus, who, again, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul will say is the foundation, right? I laid this foundation and other people are going to build on it, but there is no other foundation. And the moment that we get into competition or we start to feel like, well, my art's not as good as this other person's art or the songs I write are not, they're not getting as many plays on Spotify or that my church doesn't have as many this people coming to it or what, like the moment you get into that thing, you've lost the fact that like, no, 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 some people plant, some people water. Jesus is the foundation, right? And we're, we're building on that. So John the Baptist's disciples here kind of lost the thread. What then happens is John the Baptist almost immediately, I, I don't know what the, what the length of time is. I wish I did. Someday I'll ask, right? But in the text, it feels like John the Baptist's disciples come to him and they go, hey, this guy across the way that you told us about is doing this thing and he's taking all of our people. It feels like right there in the moment, John the Baptist responds. So I don't know if that's a spontaneous response or if he thought about it for a little while and then, and then he responded. But what it feels like to me is that there's this, there's this speech. It's my favorite speech in the Bible. And that feels a little heretical because it's not a Jesus speech, but John the Baptist says this thing, we'll read it in just a second. He says this thing that, in my opinion, is the most clearly and beautifully articulated philosophy of life and ministry that I see in the whole Bible. And it kind of feels like he just does it out of his ear. Like, he just kind of coughs this thing up. And it, in my life, it has, it has changed everything. It's changed everything about my marriage and my ministry and my art. And, it, like, it kind of reshapes everything. So they come to him and they say... He's, he's taking all of our customers. And this is John's answer in 27. Either quickly or after a few minutes of consideration, John answered. And he said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you've heard any of that speech, it's probably that last sentence, right? That's the one that gets sewn onto doilies and pillows and <laughs> Christian bumper stickers and whatever. Um, but, but without the context of the rest of that response, you kind of lose the thread even on that. It's 
This is so good. So we basically, I, I could break down and I've spent a lot of time dialing into this and thinking about it. But he, he gives this response to his disciples, and I see it sort of articulating this kind of unspooling or telescoping philosophy of ministry that I see sort of manifesting in, in four different aspects. So the very first thing he does is he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless he receives it from heaven. So they're saying like, oh, we had all these people that were being baptized, and now, now they're going away, and what, you know, what's happening to our ministry? What's happening to our reputation? And he goes, ah, nobody has anything except that which they receive from heaven. I, I want you to get this first piece, because it's a, I think it's a coin with two sides, right? So, so the, the first and the easiest thing to understand is he's saying, he's saying, look, the ministry we had, God gave us, and if we had a long line of people waiting to be dunked, that's God's business. And if we have a short line of people waiting to be dunked, that's God's business. If uh, if next month we got a huge crowd, and then this month we got nobody, like the first thing he's saying is like, yeah, we've had this great ministry, and it's been important and viable, and God has used it, but like, we're not responsible to maintain that because nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. So the first thing I see in his philosophy that I'm trying to adopt in my own life is a recognition of dependence in all things, right? That my marriage and my parenthood and my creativity, whether that comes in the form of rug hooking or painting or songwriting or writing or whatever, storytelling, that all of that I have because God gave it to me. He made me the guy I am. And I'm not, I'm not the, the source of any of that, right? And if, I, if the stuff I produce is good, great. And if it's not, or if it's good, but it's not as good as something somebody else does, like, all right, because... I don't have anything except that which God has given me. My capacity is what God created me with. My, my uh, passions and my likes and my dis dislikes. Like We are all created uniquely for a unique ministry and a unique purpose. And, and I can rest in my dependence upon God. I can rest in the fact that well, what I have God gave me, and if I don't have that tomorrow or if I have something different or if it rises or shrinks or whatever, like I, I'm not the source of that. Jesus is the source of that. So he says... No one receives anything except that which comes from God. John recognizes that his ministry is dependent upon God. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. This is, this is the part I was just talking about a second ago. Paul says, in response to um, division in the church at Corinth, because people were prioritizing who their favorite teachers were. Some people were saying, well, I, we're followers of Apollos. And some were saying, well, we're followers of Cephas. And some were saying, we're followers of Paul. Paul's like... What, what's this division? Like none, like, none of these people matter. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we're God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Right? John... The Baptist recognizes what Paul articulates here, and that is that everything he has, he received from God. But the, the other side of that coin is this, that the people he's been serving, uh, all John the Baptist can do for the people that come to him to be baptized, all he can do is call them to repentance and dunk them in the water, right? That's all he can offer, because he's just a human guy. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets or whatever. I'm not saying John the Baptist doesn't have a significant ministry or a, or a place in history, but John the Baptist himself recognizes that what he can do for his fellow man has a cap on it. It's limited, right? If someone comes to John the Baptist, or put it in common terms, if somebody comes to me, there's only so much I can do. I might be able to give a little bit of wisdom that comes from my own experience, but even that is biased. My knowledge and understanding is limited. I'm making my best guess on most things. And so like, I, yeah, can I contribute things to other people's lives? I certainly can, right? Are there times when I've written songs that have encouraged people or I've preached a sermon that, that has uh, got somebody to think about something else? Yeah, but, but I can't do in the other people's lives what they really need, right? What people really need, only Jesus can do. So the other side of the coin of what I think John the Baptist is acknowledging here is it's actually better for our customers to be in proximity with Jesus than it is for them to be with us, right? I would rather them go over there because nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven, right? If they come to John the Baptist, I'll do my best. Like, I'm going to do the thing God gave me to do. But what I can do is so far less than what Jesus can do. So there is this dependence in John's mind and in his heart both for the ministry that he has, whether it rises or falls, whatever, but, but also a sense of, like, people don't need me 
they need Jesus. And that's important because it's easy, like as a pastor, gosh, I think we've all seen the downfall of building a ministry around a singular human individual, right? If you build a church around a guy that isn't Jesus, you are setting yourself up for destruction. Because all those, there isn't a, there isn't a, there is not a human pastor or philosopher or Bible, you know, college professor. There's not a single one of those that isn't flawed. They are all flawed. There is, I, I literally at church last week on Sunday said, like, you guys realize this, I said to the congregation I'm teaching, I'm like, you realize that in the last five years I've been the pastor of this church, that I have certainly said things to you that I believe with deep conviction that are wrong, right? And I don't even know they're wrong, right? That's the problem. But the reality is that because of the way the Bible is written, there are some things where we're taking our best guesses. And when I'm taking my best guess, I'm going to try and own that. I'm going to say, like, there are a lot of people who think different things about this. Here's my best guess on it, but I could be wrong about that, right? So you don't want to put all your eggs in my basket because there's stuff where I'm, I'm just doing my best here. You want to put your eggs in the basket of Jesus because everything you need you get from heaven, not from not from your peers, not from other human beings. We're all just doing our best here, right? So John recognizes this dependence. It's better for people to go to Jesus. I, uh, I was teaching at a camp in like Blue Jay, uh, kind of Running Springs, Lake Arrowhead area called Thousand Pines. And it was a junior high camp. This is years ago. And I, and I had this, cute, like the cutest little, she was like a sixth grade girl. You know, she comes up to me after one of my messages and she goes, Pastor McWaters. She says, I can tell that you have the anointing of God upon you. And I was like, well, that's kind of like, not, like, you know, like, what do you even say, right? So I was like, oh, thanks. You know, like, I appreciate that. She goes, no, you don't understand. She's like, every time you read God's word, your face takes on a heavenly glow. I was like, well, I never heard that before. You know, like, I, like, honestly, I'm like at a loss to know what to do. And she goes, no, you, you're not understanding me. Like that God is doing something unique and special and you have special anointing because when you read God's word, your face takes on a heavenly glow. And I was like, I don't know. And then it dawned on me that just recently, like prior to that, I had gone from using like a paper traditional Bible to using an iPad. Oh, and, uh, no. So I, I grabbed my Bible off the podium and I said to her, I was like, is it, um, is it like this? <laughs> right? And she sees the reflection of my iPad in my glasses. And she goes, Never mind. <laughs> so, like, I feel bad a little bit for sort of ruining. And that's not even to diminish the fact that, like, I understand I have a calling and I have a particular giftedness and whatever. But the reality is I don't, I don't want that girl or anybody else. And I certainly don't want to put my confidence in my own calling, you know, or my own ability. Like, I want to recognize, as John the Baptist does so well. So, in an, our context, in a church context... We want the people that we're serving, um, if, you're, if you're painting or you're writing or you're producing, you want the people that are your patrons, the people that are looking at the work you're doing, to always recognize where the real power is. You know, that we're, we're dependent, just like they are, you know. So that's the, that's the first piece of this, his dependence on someone else. Part of that dependence also comes at the end of, back to John chapter 3, at the end of John, uh, this section, there is a commentary and... Uh, Theologians aren't sure whether that's a continuation of what John the Baptist is saying. I think it's probably more likely that it's John the author of the, of the gospel here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, commenting. But he says in 31, He who comes from above is above all. Speaking about Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whether he receives his testimony, and uh, whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So whether that's a king, I, I really don't think that's a, the same voice. I don't think that's John the Baptist. I think that's John. But what he's saying is, the reason why John the Baptist is so dependent is because Jesus is superior in every way, right? Superior experience, superior knowledge, superior uh, like power, all in like every category. It makes perfect sense for us to be dependent on God because he's superior to us in everything we're doing. So, so John is first dependent. Let's go back to the John 3, uh, his response. So he answers, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And then secondly, verse 28, he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. 
you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ. As a teacher, there's like a there's a funny thing that happens where people like sometimes I'll finish teaching and people will come back and they'll they'll quote me, but they'll completely miss the point of what I've said. You know, like so the, they under they heard me and they understood me, but they but they didn't really get what I was trying to say. And that has to do with my own limitations as a teacher or whatever. This is a perfect example of that. Like John the Baptist's disciples come to him and they go, Hey, you know that guy you've been telling us about, that Lamb of God or whatever? And he's over there and he's taking all our clients. And John the Baptist's like, What? Like you're, you've heard me, the one I'm bearing witness to, you you get that I've been pointing you to the Messiah, and yet you're jealous of the Messiah? Like, something has not connected here, right? So he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The second principle I want you to see here, not only is John the Baptist uh, articulating a dependence upon God, but he's also deflective. He's deflective. And, that, and that's where we get the idea of uh, the classical images of John the Baptist pointing away from himself, the tattoo I got is... Not for this conference, but because that's a big deal to me, right? It's a big deal to me that John the Baptist is always pointing away from himself. In John chapter 1, when it describes John the Baptist the first time, speaking of John the Baptist, it says uh, that he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. And they said, are you the prophet? And he said, no. And they said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said, right? John the Baptist was always pointing away from himself. And he's not the only one who does that, right? So there are places where the Apostle Paul does that. There are places where Peter does that. There uh, famously are places like in the Old Testament record. I love the story in Daniel, um, in Daniel chapter 2, where uh, Daniel... Uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and none of the wise men and enchanters and soothsayers and magicians can interpret the dream. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar basically says, if you can't tell me the dream and its interpretation, I'm going to kill all of you. And they're like, we can't, none of us can do that. So he, Nebuchadnezzar authorizes the, the death, the slaughter of all the wise men. So they come to Daniel's door basically and go like, hey, I don't know if you heard, but we got to murder you because you're a wise man and all the wise men got to die. And Daniel's like, what's this? And it says, well, Nebuchadnezzar wants to know the dream and its interpretation. Well, God gives Daniel the dream and its interpretation, and then Daniel gets an audience before Nebuchadnezzar. And when he gets there, um, when he gets there, it's really, let me, I, okay, so Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, the king, in verse 26, the king says to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Coincidentally, this is the same question he had already asked of all the wise men and enchanters and magicians. He said, can you do this thing? And they said, no. So now Daniel, who knows the dream and its interpretation because it's been given to him by God, now he's standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar who's already signed a death warrant for all the, the wise men, and Nebuchadnezzar repeats the question, can you do this? Now, if you're smart, if you're, if you're playing chess with your life and you're making a strategic move, when Nebuchadnezzar says to you, do you know the thing I want to know, the easy answer to save your own skin is yes. Because he does. He knows it. But Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel answers in 27 the same way all the wise men and enchanters had already answered. He, he leads with no. Nebuchadnezzar says, can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? Daniel goes, uh-uh. He says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days, you're dreaming the visions of your head as you lay in bed or these. I, I like the strategic nature of that, that Daniel leads with no. What's he doing there? He's pointing away from himself. He doesn't want Nebuchadnezzar to be confused about where the dream and the interpretation came from. He doesn't want Nebuchadnezzar to be confused about Daniel himself having any kind of power. You guys, this is a vital thing for us as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Ambassadors are not self-appointed. Ambassadors are not self-sufficient. Ambassadors are not self-important. Ambassadors bring the message of the king to the king's audience. That's what we do, right? So it, it is very important all the time that people know we're not the king. That we're, we're just carrying his message to the people he's called us to. And that's deflection. John is deflective. He's pushing people away from himself, right? He's not preaching out of selfish ambition. He's not trying to further his own cause. And that's hard as, from an artist standpoint, right? Well, not just from an artist standpoint. Um, that's hard from a pastoral standpoint too, right? Our world, this is, it's kind of gross, but our world is set up, evangelicalism is kind of set up to re reward narcissistic pastors. 
like I, I have kind of a deep, it's not for today, but we could talk about it sometime, that I, I kind of, I'm kind of not sure that a person who is not a narcissist can be successful in leading a giant church. I just, not, I'm not sure that can work. Because if you try and lead a giant church with the heart and mind of Jesus, they will run you out of town, right? They will run you out of town because they, they want somebody who's like, self-assured and confident and never gets anything wrong and, you know, has a thick skin and will take their criticisms and all of their, you know, whatever and never let it phase them. Well, that, that's not, that's not what Jesus was like. And that's not what his people should be like. But if you're trying to live a deflective life, it's very difficult to navigate like the landscape of uh, ministry in a, in a massive context, but it's also difficult as an artist. Why? Because everything's about self-promotion, right? If you're not working hard to like get your brand out there and you're not working hard to get followers and likes and you're not working hard to up, you know, all of that stuff is wired not to, not to be pointing away from yourself, but to be pointing right at yourself. So there is a temptation sometimes to, not, you know, to, to be, um, almost to take the mindset that says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to become a big deal. And then once I'm, once I'm the biggest volleyball star on the planet, then when people ask me how I got to be such a great volleyball star, then I'll be like, it was Jesus. You know, like, He'll be lucky to have me. But that isn't John the Baptist's way. John the Baptist's way, and the way I think I think we're called to live is a way that goes, I might not ever be the biggest volleyball star in the world, and that's okay because nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. But I am going to be focused on like if if all I ever have is influence with the two guys that work at Circle K, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and point those guys to Jesus. You know that that might be what God gives me, and I'm gonna try and use that. Right. So dependence and deflection. Am I moving too fast? Does this make sense? Okay. <clears throat> Let's keep reading the speech. Uh, so he says, uh, he says in 22, or excuse me, in 27, a person can re cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So the third section of this speech is literally a sermon illustration, right? So I don't have to come up with my own illustration here. He's already done that. And the illustration that he uses with his disciples is a picture of a best man at a wedding. Best man at a wedding. And he goes, I'm not, I am not the center of attention in this equation. I'm just the, I'm the buddy of the people who are getting married. I'm the guy who's standing off to the side. The illustration he's using is this. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to be like a, a bridesmaid or a maid of honor, a matron of honor or whatever, or a best man in a wedding. It is, it's a very... Like, it's, a, it's an honorable thing to be invited by your family or your friends or whatever to serve in that role. But you're, you're not real important, right? There's not, like, a lot of value. You're just kind of, you have to buy an expensive outfit and then just kind of stand there. That's the job. But if you didn't understand that, so, like, if you came in totally blind and your friend said, hey, I want you to be the best man at my wedding, and you didn't know what that meant, you might assume that like the best man is kind of a big deal. You know, like that's kind of an important role and now you gotta get a tuxedo and like there's a flowers you had to get and there's like a speech you gotta write and so now the wedding day comes and you've got this, you've got this idea of grandeur, right? This sort of perception of what a best man's gonna be and then the actual process of the wedding, you're gonna be pissed off the whole time because you're gonna get in there and you're gonna realize nobody in the church is looking at you Right? You don't, you don't have any words to say in the ceremony. Like the photographer got like one picture of you, but she's taken like 50 pictures of your buddy, right? You don't get to kiss anybody, right? So <laughs> if, you, if, you are, if you are confused about your role, you're going to be frustrated all the time. How many people do we know, followers of Jesus, who are frustrated all the time because they just have not understood what this is we're doing? They haven't understood that we're not the groom, that we're, we're, we are the guy who stands to the side. So my third principle here that I think John the Baptist illustrates really well is that he's dedicated to the joy of someone else. Dedicated to the joy of someone else. And that, man, I'll tell you, that's just like not an American thing. So like we're just, we're like fundamentally we've been raised from the ground up to be dedicated to our own joy. And so turning loose of that, Jesus would call it dying to self, right? being dedicated to the joy of someone else, it changes everything. If you understand your role as a best man, that's actually a fun thing to do. It's fun to be a maid of honor. It's fun to be a part. It's even an honor just to be asked to be a part of that. But if you don't, if you don't understand what that is, you'll be upset, stressed out, tempted to try and steal the show, lean in, you know, whatever. Like, you'll be tempted to be a distract. You'll become a distraction if you don't understand your role. 
But the moment you understand your role, there's real joy in being able to stand there while your best friends get married, right? That's actually a really cool thing. That analogy gets a little fuzzy for us because we are both, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, in whatever capacity we're built, we are both dedicated to the joy of someone else. We are also technically the bride, right? So as the church, we're the bridal. So that illustration doesn't work all the way out, right? It's just, it works in this one thing he's trying to say. But in this one thing he's trying to say, he goes, I'm not mad that all the people are going over there to Jesus. I actually feel really excited about it because I'm not the center of this show. I'm, I'm, I'm just the... I'm just the guy who's dedicated to somebody else's joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This, this is It's amazing that we get to be ambassadors. And whether we use... Um, whether we use spoken word, or whether you're a preacher, or a, or a singer, or a photographer, or a dancer, it doesn't matter what your different level, of, it, it could, I, I mentioned this last night, you might, you might just be really good at spreadsheets, right? But you have the opportunity to be an ambassador in the way that you handle numbers, and the way you crunch the math, and that you, the integrity with which you bring to the organization you're working. So it isn't that, like, there aren't different tiers, like all of us are, we're, we're field workers in God's field, right? And there's, there's honor in being chosen to be an ambassador by the king. Um, but you also have to think through, like, one, one other little side thing I'll say is you, you're going to need to think through, and I, I'm talking to myself, but you've got to figure out what fuels you as an ambassador. Because the um, there's, a, there's an American thing, again, which is like, we'll do anything for a payoff, right? And most of what we do, career changes and whatever, they come down to, like, well, how where can I make the most money, or where can I... Where can I grow my brand or whatever? And the kingdom of God is just not about, about payoff for ambassadors. Like, that's just not how it works. So what you'll have to think through and, and what you need to process is there's got to be another fuel other than personal compensation. It's why some churches will focus largely on, like, going to heaven or on having your prayers answered or, like, even, like, when you talk about, um, what do they call it, like, prosperity gospel, that all comes from a thing of, like, hey, follow Jesus and you'll get your speedboat, right? He wants to give you all, like, you'll get everything you ever wanted. That's because we have a hard time uh, living under the umbrella of, like, the payoff for faithful ambassadorship is for the king, right? It's not it's not for the ambassador. And that's hard because uh, personal gain fuels much of what we do. Let me give you a suggestion and I'll do it with a story. But, and I'm, I'm learning this as I go. Um, when my son Hank was three... Little guy, potty training, right? Um, when when Hank would say, "I need to go to the bathroom," he didn't mean like in the next forty-five minutes it'd be great to find a restroom somewhere. Like if he said, "I need to go to the bathroom," it was like you had you had like seconds on the clock, right? So we're sitting in the Fresno airport one time, getting ready to fly to, uh, to fly to Vegas to see in-laws, and uh, my son Hank goes, "I gotta go potty," and I'm, I don't even remember what I was doing. Like if I was holding a PlayStation or something, I just like, threw whatever I threw it. And I scoop up my kid, and I'm running through the Fresno airport to get, try and get to the bathrooms. And I get to the bathrooms, and I figure out where the stalls are, and I fling open the door, and I set down that kid, and I yank his pants. But, like, right then, the timer has run out. And so, not, I don't want to be too graphic, you know, gross. But there's a mess, okay? So there's a mess on Hank, and on his clothes, and on his shoes, and on the floor, and on my shoes, and the bottom of my pants. There's, like, a mess. And there's a moment there, you guys, where I think... I'm just gonna put this kid in the trash. Right? There's like one of those big, one of those big dumpsters. I'm like, I'm just gonna take this kid and drop him in there because I'm young. Like I can have more kids, and this would be like a fixer-upper kid for some other family. They'll be like, somebody threw away a perfectly good kid. We just gotta hose him off. And, you know? and so this is all running through my head. Like, how do I get out of here? And I look down at my boy, and he's sobbing. Right? He's so sad, and he's embarrassed and whatever. So I start, I start cleaning him up. And the next memory I have is standing in the uh, the bank of sinks in the Fresno airport bathroom, which isn't a great spot anyway, but, and I'm washing poop out of these tiny underpants and I see my own reflection and I think, when did this become my life? You know, like when did I become the guy who does this nasty job? Uh, but I got them all cleaned up and we made our flight and whatever. Listen, there, there wasn't a moment that day where Hank thanked me. Um, there isn't going to be a day in the future where Hank's gonna go, Dad, you remember that day in the Fresno Airport bathroom that was so inspirational? I've decided to become a missionary or whatever. Like he's, that's never coming around. He, 
there were no other parents around, like nobody going like, you sir are a noble and a gentleman, you know, we're calling Oprah Winfrey, this is a beautiful thing you've done today. But there was no, there was no payoff for me, there was no payoff for me, it was all gross, why did I do it? What was the fuel? The fuel was love. Was love. Love. Here's the answer to that whole story for, for what we're processing here. Love is a motivator when there is no payoff. We will do things for love that we actually wouldn't do for money, right? Like I, you couldn't pay me to do that Fresno Airport thing for somebody else. Uh, there's not a dollar amount that would lure me to do it. I will only do that thing for love. But we will do harder things for love. So so that and then when you put all this together. When it comes to what we do and how we do it, it starts to make sense that when, when, the, when the religious leaders came to Jesus and said, what's most important? Right? What's the most important rules? He's like, love the Lord your God, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? And the second one is like, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you get those two, the rest of it all comes together. Like, like you've solved the puzzle. You love God with all you are and you love other people. <clears throat> And the, uh, the rest of it will be enfolded in that. If you get those two, why? Because love is the fuel. Love is the thing that motivates us. And it is, um, it is the thing that drives an ambassador who's not going to get a paycheck at the end of the day. Now, that's not to say there aren't rewards for following Christ. There are. But they, they, they pale in comparison to the life that we're called to live. Right. So, so John the Baptist, sorry, back to that. He's dependent. Nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. He's deflective. You yourself say, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the one that comes before him. And he's dedicated to the joy of someone else. And his dedication to the joy of someone else, I think, is fueled by his solidarity with human beings, his love for other people. He loves the people that were in his line enough to be stoked that they're now with Jesus. Right? Now, the way that translates into... Uh, church ministry and artistry and all of those kinds of things, that dedication to the joy of another be becomes a, a drive to be people who are, number one, uh, Christ-centered, because that's what's best for people, right? So I get emails every month from people who would like our church to be a political engine or a philosophical engine. They'd like it to be a, uh, a, a an engine for social justice alone or experience or emotion or uh, fraternity or whatever like there's all kinds of things people want the church to be and and love for my fellow man drives me to not allow any of those things to be the foundation of our church because we cease to be a church right at that point we're just a club so in order to be a church the foundation has to be christ love is the fuel that has me go like we're not we're not supporting political candidates at this place like there are great clubs that do that and we care about politics and about being a good citizen and you should have opinions about all those things but that's not what we're doing here, right? You should care about social justice. You should care about all these other issues, but that's not what this thing is. This thing fuels all of that, right? You have to look through the telescope the right way. John the Baptist is dedicated to the joy of someone else. Finally, and here's the famous part in John chapter three. He says in 28, you yourselves bear me witness. I'm not the Christ, I'm, I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. There it is in verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. And again, most of the time when you hear people quote this, they do it without the context of the rest of the deal. And it almost becomes like a, um, I hear it quoted as like kind of like a mantra to be actualized. You know, like a thing like we got to, hey, everybody get a hand in here. We're going to make Jesus a big deal. Right? Let's go. We're going we're gonna to really pump him up. That's not what John the Baptist is saying here. What John the Baptist is doing is he's recognizing his own decreasing status, right? That in the grand course of human history, you know, John the Baptist really isn't, like, he's not the Luke Skywalker in this narrative. He, he is just like a Jawa who gets shot on day one, you know? He's like another. So, and, and that's not to say, again, that John the Baptist doesn't have a significant role to play, or that we as ambassadors, people in the kingdom of God, that there's not value to that. There is. But in comparison, like, guess what? If, you, if you're hoping that the trajectory of your life is greater and greater glory for you, you're always going to be frustrated, just like the best man who doesn't understand what he's doing. But if you can turn loose of that and go, ah, you know what? My, my responsibility is to be focused on Jesus who is and is becoming, you know, Philippians will say, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like, that's where we're headed. That's the end of the story. The end of this story is the worship of all, all beings of Jesus. 
And I'm not part of that story at all, except that I'm one of those worshipers, right? So this, he must increase, I must decrease, is not John the Baptist going like, we got to work hard to like really, you know, become the most famous volleyball player so we can, you know, kiss the ring. It's about, it's about recognizing like that just is how things are. And I'm not trying to fight that. If everybody's going over there to Jesus, well, guess what? That's the way human history is moving. And there, there will only make us frustrated to try and argue with that because we, we just aren't important in this thing, right? So it's a, it's a, my fourth point here is that John is decreasing and he knows it, <laughs> right? He's decreasing. Dependent, deflective, dedicated. I didn't have to use alliteration, but you know, it's like an old pastor trick. So uh, he is decreasing. This is not John conceding victory, uh, but John acknowledging the central truth of the universe that Jesus is the center of the story. It's not a strategy to be enacted, but a reality to be embraced, right? I think it's interesting, so, and, I'll, and I'll sort of finish with this, and then we can talk about it a little bit. Uh, two, two last things. I know I always say that. But John isn't, he isn't going to stop baptizing. It says Jesus was baptizing, and John also was baptizing. So what John isn't doing here is going like, what I do doesn't matter, so I'm just going to stop doing it, right? I'm just going to go sit down someplace, because now Jesus is here, so what's the point? And that, that is a real danger for us as creatives and as ambassadors, that, that when you start to think about the fact that Jesus has got all the power and all the knowledge, that he's the center of the story, that he's the foundation of the church, that he's the kind of, you know, he is, he's the king of the universe, it can sometimes lead people to this mindset that's like, nothing I do is meaningful, right? Nothing I do is relevant. It's kind of this like, pity party, woe is me. That's not John the Baptist either. He's not, he's going to keep baptizing, right? He's going to end up going to prison and losing his life because he stands up to the authority during his day, right? For their wickedness. Like there, he's not, he's not backing down. When he's in prison, he will continue to think deeply about whether Jesus even is exactly who he said he was, right? He's going to send messengers to Jesus and go, are you the one we thought you were? Because I'm watching what you're doing and it doesn't quite feel like you're doing everything we thought you were going to do. That, that's not a guy who's turned off his mind or turned off his ministry or turned off his heart. He is still pursuing uh, his calling, but he's just, he's doing so with a recognition of his, like, it, uh, the true significance of who he is. Um, so here's, here's where I want to finish, and it's, we'll look at another story that I think is helpful to me. But I want to encourage you that in all of this, that you don't let the pendulum swing so far in dependence and deflection and dedication to the joy of someone else and a decreasing nature that you're good with, that you don't let your pendulum swing so far as to feel like you're nothing, you know, that what you do is worthless. And, and the way I would like to illustrate that is in a story in John 21, um, and it's a, it's a part of a bigger story, but it gets missed, I think, a lot. And in John 21, after the resurrection... Um, and this, by the way, is not a John the Baptist story. John the Baptist is long dead at this point. But in John 21, Jesus is resurrected, and he had told his disciples beforehand, after I rise from the dead, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. So the disciples go back to Galilee, and they go back to fishing. In John 21, the disciples, after the resurrection, are fishing on, on the Sea of Galilee, and they're not catching anything, right? It's uh, echoes of an earlier story, right? They've been here before. And uh, somebody shows up on the shore, and he says, hey, have you caught anything? Which is an annoying question to ask fishermen who haven't caught anything. Hey, how's the catch? And they're like, it sucks. Thanks for asking. And he goes, why don't you throw the nets on the other side? And they do, and their nets fill up with fish. And John, the disciple that Jesus loves, he looks at Peter, and he says, that dude on the shore is not just an annoying dude on the shore. That's Jesus. That's, that's our master. That's the Lord. John wraps his coat around him. He flings himself into the water, not to swim away, but to swim towards Jesus, right? Even in the midst of his betrayal and where else, he swims towards Jesus. And most of the time when you study John 21, then you sort of skip ahead to the place where Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And, you know, there's a lot that's been made of that. It's a great story. But there's this little section between Peter throwing himself out of the boat and that confession. And it's where Jesus serves breakfast, right? So um, let, let's just, we'll just read it together briefly. So it says in verse 9 of John 21, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Right? Okay, so, so this is just a tiny little blip on the radar, but think about what's going on here. First of all, they get to shore, and Jesus is cooking breakfast, right? So, creator of the universe, 
right? The creator of the universe is cooking breakfast, and if Jesus is making breakfast, like, how good is that breakfast? It's going to be like a pretty awesome breakfast. So I, I'm looking forward someday to tasting this breakfast, even though the idea of fish for breakfast is not immediately appealing to me. I do think it's probably an awesome breakfast. What I want you to think about is the fact that when they got on shore, Jesus was already cooking fish. He already had some. And what he says to them is, bring some of the fish you've caught and add them to the, to the fire. We, it doesn't tell us where Jesus got that, those, those first fish. I don't, I don't know where he got those first fish, but he's Jesus. So I kind of imagine that he takes his frying pan down to the shore, and he's like, hey, fish. And they're like, hi, Jesus. And he's like, jump in. And they're like, okay. And they get in the thing. And he, like, he, he had some fish that he either caught or whatever. But Jesus has fish. Maybe he just, maybe he just materialized them like he did with the loaves and fishes, right? Just whatever. But he's cooking fish. Wherever Jesus got those fish, he was able to get... He's capable of getting as many fish as he needs, right? He didn't need their fish. He, if he, he knows how many of them there are. He knows what's going to take to feed them. When they get out on shore, he says to them, bring some of the fish you've caught and add them to the fire. Why does he do that? He doesn't need their help. He doesn't need their fish. He's, he's capable of feeding 5,000 men, not including women and children. He doesn't need their help. He, he's not going like, oh, I wanted to cook breakfast, but I could only get three fish to jump into my frying pan. Why does he do that? Well, I think he, and this is, again, this is one of those places where I'm taking my best guess. I think Jesus invites them to add some of their fish to the fire, not because he needs them, but because he wants them to experience the joy of participating in what he's already cooking, right? He's already got a thing moving. There's a thing he's doing, and he doesn't want to do it alone. Could he do it alone? Yes, he could do it by himself. What he's chosen, and this is true, not just of this moment at breakfast, but it's true of the whole story of human history. He never needed to make any of this, right? He never needed to put oxygen in our lungs. He never needed to make you a photographer or me a songwriter. He never needed to do the things that he's done. Why does he do it? He does it because he wants us to know the joy of participating with him in the story he's writing, right? In the, in the breakfast he's already cooking. So he says to them, bring some of your fish and add them to the fire. Not because he needs fish or he needs any kind of help, but because he wants them to experience the joy of participation. But here's the other piece of this I want you to see. Everything they grab out of that net and bring to the fire, they never had before he showed up. When he showed up, their nets were empty. So on their own strength and in their own strength, Jesus could have said to them, hey, bring some of your fish, and they would have had to say, like, we don't actually have any fish. But they're able to contribute to what he's cooking because he put fish in their net. So think about what this means for us as artists, as pastors, as humans, as ambassadors. Jesus wants you to experience the joy of participating with him in the thing he's already doing, to be dependent and deflective and dedicated to the joy of other people and decreasing. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you're meaningless. Do you have meaning in the fact that you've been invited to be the best man or the maid of honor? You've been invited to participate in this thing, and there is joy for you in that. But never lose sight of the fact that everything you bring and add to the fire, he gave you first. You don't have, I don't have anything to add to the fire that he didn't put in my net. Whatever I bring is, I'm all, I'm grateful to him for the first gift and then the invitation. And that's true of all of our talents. It's true of all of our abilities. And as long as we don't lose sight of that, it enriches the nature of everything we create, everything we make, everything we produce, um, the opportunities we have to point people to Jesus with whatever skills and talents we have. Those are all a byproduct of me pulling out of the net that he filled and then putting it on his fire to serve his people and his purpose, right? So, um, so, so there is, uh, I'm trying to think about how to summarize this. There is a joy in bringing the philosophy of John the Baptist pointing away from himself to whatever we do. And, that, and that's both true of our family lives, it's true of our ministry lives, ambassadorship, artwork, uh, the way we interact with the guys at Circle K, all, all of it comes down to, like, this story is not about me, but I have been invited to be a part of this story, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring my fish to the fire, you know? Okay. Any questions about that? Make sense? Yeah. I have a question. It's not necessarily... I can ask it later, actually. Okay. okay. The, all that stuff about the fish is a guess, right? So it's me It's me putting stuff in between the lines. It, it could be that... It could be a lot of other things. But to me, it feels um, like it illustrates a grander picture of the whole creation story. Like, just the inclusion of human beings <clears throat> in the mix feels like God giving us a chance to know him because he knows how good he is, right? Okay. Yes? Under number three, dedication, uh, the payoff of faithful ambassadorship is 
I mean, I think the payoff of faithful ambassadorship primarily is the glory of God. So the payoff is for God. But according to the, 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 the teaching, again, of Jesus that would say everything falls under the umbrella of love God, love others, I think when we say things like, I'm, what I'm doing, I'm doing for the glory of God and the good of others, we recognize that uh, the good of others is subservient to the glory of God because the good of others also serves God as long as we're using, like I talked about last night, yeah. with intention, uh, the good of others becomes the glory of God. Um, the good of others can be a can be a goal in its own. If the intention is wrong, if I become a person who's like, man, I just want to like, I just want to make the world a better place, and I don't have the glory of God in my heart. Idolatry. Yeah, then it's idolatry, which is what we talked about last night. But as long as I'm as long as I'm listening to Jesus go, love love God, love others, and you've solved the puzzle. I, what Jesus is saying is this one's primary, and this one is secondary, and that's everything. So I think. The payoff is the glory of God and the good of others, which is also the glory of God. Now, you can get into the weeds on like, you know, as people do, into treasures in heaven and all that. We can get into all that. Like, I, I get into great arguments with people about, the, you know, the, the different colors of robes in heaven and the different neighborhoods. And it, that's all just like stuff people made up, you know, it's just not in there. It's like, I, I do think there are places, this is not exactly your question, Tommy, but I do think there's places where we see... Um, kind of like bait for holiness, right? But I think that's elemental. So I, I think there's kind of like, when my kids are little, I might offer them a Twix to clean their room. But the goal is over time that they start cleaning their room because cleaning your room is the right thing to do and not for the Twix. Like sooner or later, I should be able to pull the Twix out. When we talk about treasure in heaven or, or some of those heavenly rewards, I, I think they're true. I don't think they're the thing that should drive disciples. And, and I think they're meant to sort of move us to a place of maturity with an initial kind of entrance. Well, and that all goes back to the glory of God, too. Augustine somewhere talks about casting our crowns back at his feet because they were, like you said in your last point, grace supplied in the first place. Right. That all came from him. Right. These belong to him first. So. Okay. Other things? All right. Well, that's all I brought. So I hope it was helpful. You may have time to jump in on one of the longer ones. Uh, or you may have time to go walk the lake or 